0: chapter 4. We're continuing in our series on the unseen God. If you do have a Bible there, I think you'd find it helpful, and I know I would if you had a Bible open in front of you today. Last week we left the citadel of Susa, the capital of ancient Persia, which was ruled in 479 BC by King Xerxes, with the image of two men with a glass of wine whilst the city was fretting outside. This wasn't the first time in King Xerxes' reign that this had happened, for at the end of Esther chapter 1, we remember that Xerxes was the king who sacked his wife during a drunken rage. In chapter 2, he had appointed a new queen as part of a year-long beauty pageant in his desperate loneliness. And in chapter 3, he signed off on the annihilation of the entire Jewish race in exchange for 10,000 pieces of silver. He had been persuaded to do so by the evil Haman who had become increasingly hateful towards the Jews all through one of their leading men in Susa, Mordecai, as he refused to bow the knee before him. And so having agreed to what would have been a holocaust, we left Haman and Xerxes knocking back their drinks while the city of Susa was in uproar. As a reminder of that, look at the end of chapter 3 because the very last verse of that chapter tells us that. The courtiers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Why were they bewildered? Well, it was because the Jews had made such an incredible impact on the life and work and witness of Persia. You just need to think later on about Daniel and Nehemiah, that those who were the wisest and the best who had been taken from Jerusalem blessed that country most. Because of their faith in their covenant God. And so they were scratching their heads. Why get rid of the Jews who had blessed the Persian society so much? And that's where we pick up this incredibly compelling story today in chapter 4. First of all, we see Mordecai's reaction. Mordecai's reaction. Verses 1 to 3 in chapter 4 explain that. And he's feeling it really, isn't he? Do you see it? Not just because he was a Jew, but because he knows he's caused this trouble. A whole race is about to be wiped out because he refused to bow the knee before Haman. We, tell, we learn of that back in chapter 3 again, verses 3 and 4. Do you see it there? Back in chapter 3. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command, that is, to bow down before Haman? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply Therefore, for they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated for he had told them that he was a Jew. And so his reaction at the start of chapter four is not understated. He does what any Eastern man would do even today in such a situation. He weeps and he wails loudly and bitterly. He exhibits a public display of grief and it's not for show. It speaks of a deep inner sorrow. He tears his clothes, which is a sign that things are not as they were meant to be. He replaces them with sackcloth that itches and is desperately uncomfortable. He's engulfed in this deep and dark hole of destruction from which there seems no escape. As a man about the royal courts, he cannot even now gain access to the king or to the palace because the palace was never to be a place of mourning. Grief was barred. Sadness was to be shut out. How do we know? Verse 2 tells us, doesn't it? But he only went as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Grief was barred from the presence of the royal family. The royals separated themselves from the sadness that was outside, not wanting to engage on any level with those who were feeling the strain of life. Sadness had no place amongst the royal splendor. And how sad it is that the king remained distant when the people of the provinces were in such distress. No sadness was allowed to disturb the king's peace. He wanted joy and merriment and music and drinking and laughter and fun and the women, but he did not want anything sad to enter in. Sadness was barred. And we know of that from the story of Nehemiah as well. Remember, whenever he received that sad news from the city of Jerusalem, he, was not, he knew if he entered into the king's presence with the sadness of face, he may face death. And so Mordecai, along with his fellow Jews, threw ashes on his head, rolled in the dirt, wore clothes that would stink and sweat as they wept their way towards their impending doom. Their future was as haunting as their cries. But the king remained blissfully secure. He feasted in his palace, unavailable, unapproachable, untouchable. Now, it's at this point in the story that we're reintroduced to Esther. She didn't appear in the last chapter at all. We haven't heard of her since chapter 2. And there she was proclaimed to be the new queen. But suddenly we remember the twist in the story. Esther's a Jew. And not only is Esther a Jew... But she was brought up by the man who's just precipitated the Holocaust. (laughs) The connections are clear. In her mind, anyway. And what's even more intriguing, as she's this adopted daughter of the man who seems to have caused all his problems, while she has been receiving beauty treatment and Mordecai's ripping up on his clothes and rolling in the ashes, it's then we've got to see Esther's reluctance, which is our second point today. Esther's reluctance. A reluctance to get involved. And why was she reluctant to get involved? Well, the very interesting but also sad thing is, first of all, because Esther hadn't had news of this. Esther had not received news of the impending doom of all the Jews. Look at verse 4. It was only through her posse of servants who alerted her to the fact that the man who brought her up is outside the city making such a scene. How sad that the royal family was so cut off from the suffering of the people that she didn't even know that this edict had been written. Out of concern for her, her servants tell her all about Mordecai. I think it's fascinating that these eunuchs and female attendants use the grandeur and the splendor of the palace where no is spared and fashion and jewelry and clothing is just, just there. That Esther's initial response to Mordecai's grief is what? Have a look at verse 4. To the holocaust of the Jews, how does she respond? Look at verse 4. Let's send them some clothes. Let's send them some clothes. It's almost laughable if it wasn't so desperately sad. I can almost imagine the group of servants around about her, you know, describe, oh, Esther, what a scene he's making out there. But it's not that, it's what he's wearing. It's very grief chic. He looks terrible. He could do with something a little bit more flattering around the waist. That huge sack makes him look rather fat. And I don't know whether the dusty ash in his head is some kind of fashion statement, but it certainly isn't doing his complexion any good. So Esther sends clothes to sort out a holocaust. That's how removed from the reality of life she actually is. Esther has become so detached from life in the street she has forgotten what it is to be in need for everything she's ever dreamed of is now at her fingertips in fact even her new fingertips are at her fingertips maybe she's a little embarrassed by him the first time whenever she sends the clothes she doesn't even ask Mordecai what's wrong she doesn't even ask she wants to cover the problem with whatever seems sensible to her. Clothes will do it. Clothes will sort it out. A bit of retail therapy will sort them out. Getting what's best from the royal wardrobe will lift his mind off his poor, down-to-earth little heart. But we all know that stuff never solves the problem of suffering. We all know that. Getting more never puts an end to our grief. And yet some of us still haven't learned that lesson yet. Like her husband, she is now detached from what is dragging the people down. The answer to the problem of sadness is to cover it up, literally cover it up, and just get on. Isn't it so easy? And I'm sure you're as guilty as I am. In our culture, when we hear of heartache, we remain often unmoved. We can put our heads down into our Instagram accounts, our earphones back in and tune out to the realities and the cries of our world. We hide away in our knitting or turn back to our newspapers or plan our next night out to the cinema or our next grand holiday in the summer. We can step into our homes or into our cart and we shut the world out. It's almost like we go, no, 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 I don't want to hear don't want to hear we don't want to know oh yes we're christians and we'll come to church and we believe all the doctrines of the faith but no 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 don't tell me about all that out there don't let me be touched by what's going on in the reality of the real world let the druggies die let the alcoholics drink themselves the day. that's really what we're saying oh this has come to me afresh it has challenged me to the core of my being as i read this week Are we just simply sitting in our palaces, letting the world die? And then over the course of the next six verses, we have the very humorous sight of poor old Hatlack. He's a servant connected with Esther, her loyal advisor. And it's a case of Esther to Mordecai, Mordecai to Esther, Esther to Mordecai. Mordecai to Esther, relating the news of Haman's horrific plan to eradicate the Jews. It's a case of he said to her, then she said to him, and then he said to her. But in all of it, Esther hasn't the heart to intervene on behalf of her people. She hasn't the heart. Despite Mordecai's description of the destruction to come and the fact that he's able to pass on a copy, look at verse 8. He can actually give her a physical copy of the edict to enable her to catch the serious nature of this crisis. And then we read her reply. Look at verse 11, which says, her reply, All the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned to the king, has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to the king. What do we learn there? She hasn't slept with the king for 30 days maybe she feels she's lost favor in his eyes and she knows for certain and so does the whole nation that you just don't walk into the presence of the king without an invitation the jewish historian josephus helps us with this he describes the persian court in this way he says that behind every pillar in the court of persia was a man wielding an axe prepared to pounce on any unwelcome guests those who enter without permission, it was a case of life or death. Mordecai urged Esther to plead with the king for mercy on behalf of the people, but Esther hadn't the heart. She was not yet prepared to risk her life before his royal majesty. I mean, just four chapters into the story, and the one thing that is predictable is the unpredictability of King Xerxes. You don't know what way he's going to turn. He had already ditched one wife. It wouldn't take much to axe quite literally another Esther is honest in her assessment. She is simply not prepared to stand alone. And we must respect that. Because you see, we've got the benefit of hindsight. We know how this story ends. But Esther didn't. As she was thinking about, you know, walking in, put yourself in her marvelous high-heeled sandals or whatever she was wearing those days. Terrifying. Utterly Terrifying. We know how all this ends, but Esther didn't. And as Mordecai pushes on for an audience with the king, she isn't willing to put her life on the line, and who would blame her? Which leads on then to Mordecai's insistence. Look at verses 12 to 14. He's very persistent and insistent. Despite the fact there's no mention of God in these verses, this is the high point of the whole book, so it's worth us reading it together. Verse 12 When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer, Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. Esther had grown up in Mordecai's home. Mordecai is very clearly a man of great faith. And he knows what she should have thought. And as he summarizes, it, he does so in three ways. You see, the first one, he says, Esther, you're at risk. As a Jew, you will not be exempt from annihilation. You will be found out to be a Jew as well, and you also will be killed. Secondly, if you do not respond to the call to enter the king's presence, I know how our God works. He will raise up another Savior who will do the work if you don't. She might lose her life but someone else will step up because that's what our God does. He's a God of saving grace. And thirdly, he challenges Esther as to her rise to the throne. Look at verse 14. Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther, he says, ask yourself this. How come a Jewish girl has become the Persian queen at a time of greatest Jewish crisis? is it by chance? Ask yourself that, Esther. Why are you there? Esther, if you remain silent, you will certainly die. And if you speak up, you may die. But Esther, you have a golden opportunity. Mordecai's forthright insistence makes Esther fully aware of the serious nature of the crisis. One of the commentators helps us grasp what's going on in terms of God's sovereignty and rule over drunken kings and beauty pageants and murderous threats. Some of you I know have been on cruise ships before. You know what happens on a cruise ship? Well, the passengers can decide what they do when they're on that cruise ship. They can decide when they eat and how much they eat. They can decide whether they want to go swimming or play quoits or go to the cinema or go to the entertainment that's provided. They can make their own decisions. They They have their own free will on that journey for a week or 10 days or whatever. But one thing that's out of their hands entirely where the ship's going. That's in the hand of the captain. And folks, that is a description of God's providence and our free will. Men and women have free will. You and I have decisions that we make every day, choices to make. Some of them are good, some bad, some simple, some hard, some mundane, some important. But God is the one who holds all of history and the destination of this world in his hands. He's guiding this world to a particular place at a particular time in human history. And that's what makes him God. And Mordecai gets that. Esther, he says, you have a choice to make here, but God is still supremely in control. Whether Esther does or doesn't speak up will have consequences for her and her people, but God won't abandon them. The question this passage raises is not, is God in control? Because He is. If you really believe in a God, well, that's what I means He's over in control of everything. That's what the name of God means. It's not, is He in control? But the question is, is God in control of my life? That's a different question altogether. It's not, does He rule the world? But is He my Lord? Is He my King? Do I let his ways and his heart rule my decisions even when they're hard to make? We might summarize Mordecai's proposals to Esther in this way. Esther asks, are you prepared to add to the problem or are you going to be part of the solution? That's what it boils down to. It's a good question for all of us here in Union Road today. When things are bothering us at home or at work, when life seems unfair or we feel unhappy, or something in church is concerning us, or our Christian lives are in the doldrums, let's not look around at others. Let's not see what others are doing. Let's not wait around and do nothing. Let's not add to the problem, but let's actually be part of the solution. People say, I feel that no one talks to me on a Sunday in Union Road. Do you talk to other people? I'm not involved in anything. I just hear it all going on around you. Have you all to get involved in something to enjoy in that fellowship as you serve with others round about you? But even when it comes to the needs of our community, are we going to be part of the problem or part of the solution? Which leads finally to Esther's reliance. Look at verses 15 to 17. Esther's reliance. Esther comes to realize all that Mordecai has said is true. She resolves to do as he has suggested. Aware of the risks and falls. It's a matter of life and death. She throws herself upon the prayers of God's people. And the fasting of God's people as well. And as we know, fasting was very much an Old Testament thing. It happened every year, once a year, on the Day of Atonement. The day when the high priest went in and offered sacrifices on behalf of the whole community of God's people. And they had to fast and pray that day. Why? Because they were absolutely petrified that the high priest wouldn't come out. You ever thought about how the high priest's garment looked? With the tassels on the bottom and the bells? The bells were to enable the people outside to realize the guy was still alive inside because it was a fearful thing to go into the presence of a holy God. And the tassels were at the bottom, so if he did fall dead, they could put a hook in and pull him out. Fearful to go into the presence of God as a sinner. None of us can just stroll into God's presence. And so they had to fast and pray because not only was she not just going into the presence of a king, but she needed the help of the divine king. You know, fasting, as Jesus talks about it in the New Testament, isn't just some magic formula, it isn't Christian hocus pocus. But whenever it's used sincerely and humbly and reverently, it renews our focus. It sets aside a meal in order for us to take unhurried time to pray over a deep need, a certain problem. For all of us know when you're hungry, your senses are that bit sharper. They are. And therefore, it's in those moments we cry out to God in our emptiness which reflects our need. I wonder when the last time was you fasted, and prayed. In God's economy, prayer and fasting are gifts to be used, approaching the Holy One to whom we can bring our requests. It's saying, as I've used the phrase many times here, Lord, I can't. But you can. You can. I am weak, and you are strong. As we finish today, I want to leave you three encouragements, three things to encourage you from this chapter. Here's the first one. And why not talk about it over your side-by-side lunches today as well. Here's the first one. Our king welcomes us. Our king welcomes us. The thrust of this story surrounds the fear of an unpredictable king, Xerxes. You can't read his mood. He is unapproachable and untouched by the plight of ordinary people. You know, whenever you go to London and you want to get a glimpse of the palace, you even have to do so through a set of railings and probably a group of soldiers in front long before you even get to see the queen. But here we have ax men behind pillars. We have a king who waves a scepter, and people can only come if they're invited. But we have a king. We have a king who is not untouched by human weakness. not that marvelous? We have a king who did not cut himself off in the glories of heaven, but we have a king who came right down and faced human distress. So much so, he came out of his royal courts and he walked the streets of this world and he touched lepers who were unclean. He shared meals with dirty fishermen. He visited homes where death had taken loved ones. or all hope seemed but gone. We have a king who not only saw the burdens of this world, but did something about the burdens of this world. And he died on that cross and carried our sin and shame. We have a king who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and bow down, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, we go to so many other places, whether it be adding clothes or whatever to cover our wants and our needs. Jesus simply says come I'm here some of us don't know what we're missing a king who cares a king who doesn't wield a scepter and say stay away until I call you but a king who says come come near my King he welcomes us, he's available and approachable and accessible. Which leads me on to my second point, which I hope is so important for you as well. Don't be afraid to be sad in his presence. Don't be afraid to be sad in his presence. Mordecai was grief-stricken, but King Xerxes didn't want them. But because our King, our Jesus comes to us, We can cry and be sad and weep and mourn before our God. And on any given Sunday, it's okay to be sorrowful in this service. If you are crying your eyes out during this service, that is fine. Don't let grief be an excuse that keeps you away, but rather let that be what brings you near. Sadly, so many of our services and many of our churches today send out these signals that you've got to be upbeat, you've got to be happy, you've got to be cheering, you've got to be waving, you've got to feel part of who we are and what goes on in here. But let me assure you, you're welcome here in your grief and your sadness and your brokenness and your sorrow. You're welcome. Because God welcomes you. And thirdly and finally, God can use the faint hearted. Some of you will have seen this week the fear that spread across the Antrim Road in Belfast as kids were hurried to school, as pedestrians crossed to the other side of the road, and motorists were believing they saw an escaped leopard from the zoo at the roadside. Fearful, overcautious people shied away from this approaching cat-like figure on this busy thoroughfare, concerned for their safety, only to discover It was some child's mother who had walked out in her jammies and dropped her leopard's print dressing gown at the side of the road. True story. Look it up later, I know you will. The fear was real, but that was not an enemy that would bite. For Esther, her fear was the king would snap, that he would bite. And she says herself, if I perish, I perish. The uninvited entrance into Xerxes' presence could be her exit from this life forever. But she goes propelled by an outpouring of prayer and the knowledge of the support of God's people. She turns the theory of what she knows of the greatness of her God, the covenant-saving God, the promise-keeping God, the one who is the great I am as he revealed himself to his people all those years ago, the all-saving, never-dying king above all kings, the God of Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Mordecai, is our God. He's our God. He hasn't changed one bit. The God who loved this world so much that he gave. He gave his son. He did something. Thank God he did not theorize with us. He didn't sit in heaven and think, it would be nice to save them. It would be lovely if I could find a way to save sinful mankind but he did something. Praise God we don't simply believe in a theory that we follow, but a living person of Christ who changes us forever. The issue is not so much what you think about the gospel, but what have we done with the gospel that saves What do we sing often here in the road? All I have is Christ. All I do we Do we mean it? All I have is Christ. Be thou my vision, first in my heart First We sing it, we blast it out We sing it really well A couple of Sundays ago we sang Jesus, all for Jesus All I am and have and ever hope to be Really? This is where our God is gracious Because he knows we're faint hearted Fearful totally My knees are knocking as I'm standing here Before you today And every Sunday when I stand here outcome's uncertain. For some of you, the outcome this next week of whatever's land ahead of you, just don't know. But the one who welcomes us lovingly in our sadness is the God who's with us powerfully in our weakness. Let's pray. God, our Father, be gracious to us as we come before you as those who are faint-hearted and fearful, with outcomes uncertain, and the way I've had maybe for many of us, bleak. But we know, O God, that we can come into your presence in the saving name of Jesus Christ, because he has told us to come. And so we come with all that we are, our sin and our shame, our suffering, our brokenness. We come and you say, I will give you rest. And so we come in our sadness to a king who is not unpredictable, but is certainly gracious, welcoming, and lovely. And so we come.